I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides getting my daughter's field hockey season over with. It's so close. I can taste it. It's almost done. (sighs) And you won't be able to read your books in the bleachers, in the stands anymore. That's okay. I'm much happier reading my books in my house. So that's all right. And we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. This week's episode is for all those true crime enthusiasts out there. Every city has had murders that make the news, and Louisville is no different. Our guest this week, David Domine, adopted Louisville as his hometown and has a following here as an author, tour guide, and storyteller in the city. He's written a new book called A Dark Room in Glitterball City about a sensational murder that was discovered after domestic disturbance in Old Louisville in 2010. The story includes drugs, drag queens, and maybe even the CIA. His book is true crime, but it also veers into memoir and history, and it introduces readers to quirky characters whose eccentricities are why we have a saying here to keep Louisville weird. But first, how are you? Nah, you know, (laughs) field hockey season's almost over. At this point, that's what I'm focused on. I, this morning, carried with my husband about 10 big boxes of books to set out for the Bookworks, a former uh, guest of ours. It's a social enterprise where young people who have housing insecurities or homelessness learn life skills and they sell books. So I used to run an online vintage and antique book store. And I have since closed that store and I still had boxes and boxes of books left over from that. It was driving my husband a little nutty. And so I decided to donate all of them to the bookworks because we were thinking that we are going to sell our house soon and move to another part of town. And so we need to start paring down a lot. I need to get rid of stuff. So Anyway, it's exciting to uh, be able to hand those books over to uh, somebody who can use them and make some money off them. And, you know, it goes to a good cause. Do you feel that sense of relief? Like, yes, yes, I do. Um, You know, I'm not exactly like you. You, you know, you don't like a lot of stuff. Unfortunately, I come from a long line of people who like lots of stuff. It's just in my DNA. I'm a collector of lots of different things. I like stuff. You know, even though I like it, I also feel weighed down by it. So I have like this internal tension with it, you know? So even though part of me really wants to get rid of some stuff, another part of me is like, but I might use that for something or I might need that for something. No, you won't. It never happens. or, Or if it does, I came up with a system. So my system is, Anytime we get something, I put the date that we bought it on the box. And then once a year, I go through the boxes. And if it's been a year or more, they get tossed. Wow. I like that. I've never heard that system. But it is true. Like if you haven't opened a box within a certain amount of time, you probably don't need whatever's in there. But sometimes you don't know how long you've had that box. I've got systems. (laughs) So we're talking about true crime today. I love true crime And uh, recently, it seems like I've been talking about my daughter a lot, but when she was home last weekend for her fall break, she loves true crime too. And in fact, she's not a huge reader, but when I was telling her about David's book, she said, oh, I might want to read that one. Uh, But we started watching a show that started out in the 1990s. I don't know if you ever watched it, Carrie. Unsolved Mysteries. Do you remember Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah, who's the host of that? I don't remember. I don't remember. He had a very distinct voice. Yeah. Robert. Yeah. Robert Stack. Yes, that's That's it. Robert Stack. Okay, yes. And so I did watch that some in the the 90s. And some of it was like true crime, unsolved mysteries. Some of it was kind of paranormal. Sometimes it bordered on a little bit cheesy. Well, Netflix has rebooted that show, but like for a more modern audience. My daughter and I watched two episodes last weekend and they were really good. 
you know, each episode is about a different unsolved mystery. The first one was about a man who had been a aide for one of the Bush presidents. I can't remember which one now. But he was a very respected Vietnam veteran who was part of getting the Vietnam Veteran Memorial built. And his body was found in a landfill in Wilmington, Delaware. And no one knew why why that would be. I mean, that he had any enemies or anything like that. So the second one, I actually found even more interesting. It was a cold case from 1995 in Oslo, Norway. There was a woman who had checked into a very high-end hotel and she hardly ever left her room. They can tell by her key swipes. And later the cleaning service found her dead with a bullet to her head holding a gun as if maybe she had killed herself, but it was an odd angle and the forensic evidence just doesn't show it. And the name that she checked into the hotel was not her name. No one knows who she is. And it's been like over 20 years. And so they think that maybe she was like an assassin or worked for one of the spy agencies somewhere in the world. Anyway, that one was super fascinating too. So I'm anxious to watch more of those. Uh, so for all the you true crime people out there, give Unsolved Mysteries a try. Cool. We've started Only Murders in the Building, which you had mentioned. Yes. And it was quite good. Like we, we've only watched two or three episodes, but we enjoyed that. So it's really good. That yeah. They have only one episode coming out a week. So it's not done yet. And- I mean, we're caught up, but we haven't gotten to the finale. You know, it's funny. Steve Martin kind of plays a straight man. Martin Short is really the the star of the show, I feel like. I like Selena Gomez. She's like... She kind of has your vibe a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, mm, whatever. (laughs) So (laughs) I can appreciate her. (laughs) But I wonder if if there's going to be another season of it. You know, obviously they're going to solve this mystery, I'm assuming, but will there be more mysteries, you know, that they get to solve? I don't don't know. know. We'll just have to see. Well, speaking of mysteries, I think it's time that we hear about David's experiences with mysteries. Sounds good. Let's do it. David Domine, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. David, it is a pleasure to talk to you. I finished your book last week. It was a real page turner. And you are a well-known person around Louisville with your highly rated old Louisville historical tours and your cookbook. So it's exciting to finally be able to talk to you in person. And even though you are sometimes seen as a go-to person for all things Louisville, you are in fact not from Louisville. So tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm from uh, Wisconsin originally, born and bred, and I moved here in 1993. I came here to go to U of L law school, and my plan was to just be here a couple of years and then get out of town. I didn't really want to come to Louisville, Kentucky. I moved here from Europe. I spent most of my 20s living abroad and doing things, and I ended up not leaving. You know, so I've spent half my life here now, and uh, Louisville is kind of you know my hometown. That's pretty impressive to leave Europe and and then stay here. That that makes me feel, I've lived here my whole life. So sometimes I wonder if the grass is green or elsewhere, but it sounds like it's it's pretty nice here. Yeah, you know, people a lot of times they don't appreciate what they have in their own backyards. And uh, Louisville's a very livable city. People are friendly. It's got a very distinct vibe. And that's one of the things that attracted me to it, especially old Louisville. That neighborhood is kind of what kept me. So we always talk to our guests about their childhood and teenage reading habits. So were you a big reader during the early parts of your life? Yeah, I kind of had a sucky childhood. And so books like, you know, for a lot of people, it was it was an escape. It was a, you know, refuge. And I would read hours and hours every day. Were there certain either books or genres that you tended to gravitate towards? Well, my teenage, younger years, I was fascinated by paranormal stuff. Hans Holzer, you know, the original Ghost Hunter. Um, I loved historical fiction. I loved anything to do with old Hollywood, you know, movie stars from the 30s and and 40s. Did you have books that you tended to reread again and again, or were you willing to to venture into new territory or at least try different authors. I was always willing to try new authors and I very rarely will read a book twice. Really? Like um, with movies, there are very few movies I will actually watch more than once, you know, for enjoyment. 
I, th- I guess the reason for that is if I'm reading a book a second time, there's another book I'm not reading that's right. new that I could be discovering. I uh, kind of feel the same way about that. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a rereader generally. Yeah, exactly. So can you give our listeners a brief summary of your new book, A Dark Room in Glitterball City? I lived in a house on 3rd Street, the old Millionaire's Row in Old Louisville. Bought it in 1999. I lived there till 2008. It was a six-bedroom house. Uh, by Old Louisville standards, it was a smaller house. It was only about 4,000 square feet. Right before I moved in, the previous owner told me there was a ghost that came with the house. And like I said, I love ghost stories. I've always been fascinated by that stuff. But I don't really believe in ghosts, so I don't really think anything of it. I moved into the house, and all the things she told me would happen began to happen. <gasps> And, uh, you know, footsteps in the middle of the night and, you know, not creaks and groans. I discovered old houses make a lot of noise, but these sounded like hard soled shoes walking up and down the hallway. And my pet started acting crazy. She told me not to hang pictures on this one particular wall. Of course, I moved in. The first thing I did was hung a picture, which she told me not to. And that picture would always end up down on the floor, broken within a couple of days. So long story short, I never saw a ghost, but it made me you know, think about the paranormal. And that's kind of when I was falling in love with old Louisville. And I started hearing other people's stories about their old houses and their spooky encounters. And I started writing down these stories as a way for me to do my part to help promote the neighborhood. And that's what got me into writing about the neighborhood. Well, uh, when I moved out in 2008, a couple blocks away, there was a big house that was for sale. And I was thinking about staying in old Louisville. And this place was huge. It was 10,000 square feet, had 11 bedrooms, but it had a, an old wine cellar in the basement. And I got it in my head. I wanted a wine cellar. Well, I went and looked at the house and it was just too much work. It was, it was a wreck. So I came to where I am in the Highlands now. Well, two years later, I got up one morning. It was the morning of June 17, 2010, turned on the news. I was drinking my coffee and all of a sudden the Richard Robinson house popped up, the house I'd considered buying. And the police were out front. It was all cordoned off with caution tape. Two guys in hazmat suits were walking down a sidewalk, jostling with like a, a rubber tote bin between them. And all of a sudden, a face popped up. And I recognized the house. That was the house I had considered buying. And the face that popped up was a guy named Jeffrey Munt. When I had the appointment that morning when I looked at it, he was the appointment right after me with the real estate agent. So I didn't buy the house. He ended up buying it. And what had happened is the night before, he and his uh, boyfriend were having a fight in the house. 911 was called. They arrived. They thought they were breaking up a domestic disturbance. In the process of talking to the two guys, they started hearing grumblings about something down in the basement. They went down into the wine cellar. And they dug a body out of the dirt floor. And it was the guy's uh, drug dealer and sometimes boyfriend and kind of well-known drag queen. He had been there for seven months. The big question was who killed him and why? And so they both pointed the finger at each other. And three years later, we had the most scandalous trials Louisville had seen in a long time. So having that connection to the house, loving old Louisville, always wanting to kind of write about it. I sat in on those trials and uh, just tried to find out what happened that night and kind of examined what happened in the neighborhood, how it affected the neighborhood. And so the book is basically about the murder of Jamie Carroll, the house where it took place, and then the trial of accused killers Jeffrey Munt and Joey Bannis. Uh, It's all filtered kind of through my personal experiences. It took me a long time to write the book, so it kind of has a memoir feel to it because I was able to kind of look back and reflect on things. So it's basically a true crime book, but uh, lots of local history, quirky, real-life characters, and neighborhood gossip and intrigue. This is a departure from your past work. You've done cookbooks and and compilations of ghost tales that you've alluded to. Was it the connection with the house that made you decide that I want to go into this true crime adventure? You know, was it the opportunity? Yeah, it just, you know, the opportunity presented itself. And you know, right around the corner from where I lived, actually, you know, I, I wasn't friends with them, but I knew who the two guys were from the local scene and stuff. And yeah, I've got a lot of different things. You mentioned cookbooks, history and architecture I've done, paranormal kind of folklore. But the connection a lot of those books have is Louisville and old Louisville. 
So this was just another way for me to reveal the neighborhood and, and get people to know about the neighborhood and the city. Do you tend to read true crime? Is that something that you read? And if so, did you use that experience having read it to guide you? Although, like you said, adding in some other things, memoir and, and local history. Yeah, I read a lot of true crime. I listen to a lot of you know true crime podcasts. I mean, it's so huge right now. And you picked up on it. I like quirky things, eccentric people. And old Louisville has no, no shortage <laughs> of material when it comes to quirky, eccentric people. You know, I like to write the things that I like to read. So I basically wrote the kind of book that I wanted to read. You know, I love John Barrett's book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And the minute I read that book, you know, I was in, in old Louisville already by that time. But I was like, oh, I was like, Lord, old Louisville has all this stuff. We need a book like that. And so I'd been looking for, you know, the story that would allow me to do the, the kind of thing that he did for Savannah for old Louisville. And uh, a number of years later, the story of that murder broke. And at first it just seemed like a kind of sordid love tryst, but then all these details came out. And I mean, it was just too good to be true. You couldn't make up the, the crazy details to the story. <laughs> so for those people who don't live in Louisville or aren't familiar with old Louisville, how would you describe the neighborhood of old Louisville? So Old Louisville is one of the largest historic preservation districts in the United States. You know, a lot of people in this area don't even know that. There's like 1,400 structures. It's primarily old homes and mansions. They tend to date from the 1880s and the 1890s. They're considered Victorian houses. Some have said it's actually the largest Victorian neighborhood in the country, but you don't find a lot of like the wooden gingerbread kind of architecture that Americans think of when they hear that term, Victorian, like the famous painted ladies in San Francisco. That's actually Queen Anne architecture. Uh, Old Louisville has all these other kinds of Victorian styles, Richardsonian Romanesque, Chateauesque, Italianate, Renaissance Revival, Victorian Gothic. It just goes you know, on and on. Every house is different from the one next door. They tend to be built of stone and brick. In the late 1800s, it was the, the affluent part of town. It's where the wealthy lived. And so after World War II, like a lot of you know downtown neighborhoods, it went into a period of decline. And in the 60s and 70s, it was pretty blighted. But because of the preservationists banding together to kind of fight to save the neighborhood, in the mid-70s, it was recognized by the National Register of Historic Places. And then that kind of stopped the destruction. You couldn't tear things down anymore. By that point, probably 90% of them had been chopped up into apartments and cheap rooming houses. And so people began moving back down there. And at that point, it was known as a very bohemian neighborhood, a very eccentric neighborhood. And a lot of people think of it as, or at least then it was thought of as a higher crime rate part of town. You know, it was kind of shady. But over the years, people have been moving in. They've been restoring houses. The word's getting out. They say it's going to be the new Savannah, the new Charleston. And so there's pockets of problems here and there. But uh, a lot of people kind of see old Louisville, and it's immediately adjacent to the downtown area. It's south of the downtown area. A lot of people kind of see it as a microcosm of the city itself. Racially speaking, you know, last I checked, we got 40% black, 60% white. That's kind of what old Louisville is. We have very, very rich people living there. There's very, very poor people. There's lots of students with the university nearby, you know, families. It's just a little of everything. It's uh, just a, an interesting neighborhood. If you like old houses, it's a beautiful place to live. If you like interesting people, <laughs> There's a lot of interesting people in the neighborhood, and uh, you just got to go down there and hang out a little, and you'll meet some interesting people. As you mentioned, your book has been compared to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrett, and and you have said that you were inspired by his book. But I felt like the tone of your book is a little bit different than that one, and in some ways it feels a little bit more absurdist with these larger-than-life characters, and I'm thinking about Rick with the outlandish hats um, that makes appearance in your book. Maybe your book's a little bit more tongue-in-cheek. You're thinking of Kelly with the goofy Oh, I'm sorry, Kelly. Yeah. Kelly with the outlandish hats. Kelly with the goofy hats. Um, and that was Kelly, you know. I didn't intend for it to be that way if it comes off that way. But, you know, you attract things that you like. And, you know, I go out walking at three in the morning a lot of times in old Louisville and you go out three in the morning and if people are out and about, you're going to meet interesting people. <laughs> um, so you've got to kind of look for them. 
You know, I, I love that kind of stuff. I love hearing people's stories. I mean, if you just talk to an average person on the street, chances are they've got something fascinating in their history that you could discover. So it's kind of just looking for that and focusing on it. And, you know, just by choosing to include those characters as part of my story, the concentration of these eccentric characters, I think, is going to make yeah. their quirkiness stick out more. I think one of the reasons why the tone in mine might be a little different is because, you know, I'm living all this in real time. And these are all people I'm coming into contact with in real time. Uh, John Barrent, you know, he, about his story, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, he famously said he's the only fictitious character in <laughs> his story because he went back and kind of inserted himself in a lot of the action when he wasn't there. But I was there from the beginning and before the beginning. And so I think that might account for that different tone. And then I like, you know, I like humor and, and stuff. Mm -hmm. so I try to add humorous bits as well, not just um, some of the scary things, some of the frightening things, psychologically speaking, that we're exposed to in the book. But I try to, you know, balance it out with, with different concentrations on, you know, certain types of subject matter. I guess... Other cities have this where there's people who live in the, the city and the suburbs and there's a, a difference in how they perceive each other. But I thought your book, I think it was, was it Deborah, her character? There's this a, a little bit of tension between that, which I thought was really funny because it's true. You know, I mean, sometimes the truth can be funny, even though it can also be maybe a little bit painful for people to hear, you know, when yeah. it doesn't show that, you know, it, it shows them sort of warts and all, but that's what makes a city the place you live. It's not, it's not yeah. perfect. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you live in this area, I mean, it's just kind of well-known people outside of old Louisville, they kind of look down their noses at people who live in old Louisville and people in old Louisville, they kind of look down their noses at people who don't live in old Louisville. They're like, well, stay out in your McMansions and your newer <laughs> suburbs. We'll have the beautiful Victorian houses in our great, you know, neighborhood full of Victorian charm. So your book is about crime, but the crime is committed by two gay men. And your book introduces people who sort of run the gamut of sexual identities, sexual extremes, you know, some who are edgier than others, especially if, if you're reading this and you tend to be a little more sheltered. And in the course of the trial, you overhear people making negative comments about LGBTQ plus individuals. At Louisville has been, you know, at least for the last several years, rated highly as an LGBTQ plus positive place in terms of inclusion. So this book, the event happened in 2009, 2010. Do I have that right? Uh, yeah. The murder uh, made the news 2010. The trials were in 2013. Has Louisville changed, do you think, in terms of, is there still that sort of undercurrent of prejudice? Have you seen that change? Were you surprised by some of the comments that you heard? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, now Louisville has changed, but probably for the better, you know, uh, since marriage equality became something that people have to deal with and more gay and lesbian characters, non-binary characters, you know, out there and in the public sphere, things are changing, but there's always going to be that subsection. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I was experiencing, a lot of what I was seeing and overhearing it's that group that's that's always going to be there. Hopefully the, the size of that group will dwindle as we move forward in time. But, you know, we're just going to have that. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be like in 100 years. Hopefully we won't. But for the time being, that's just kind of how it is. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking when I was reading that, and Amy has children who are, are young adults and mine are young teenagers. And I thought, you know, I wonder how different generations would react because my kids would probably be like, no big deal. What, what's the deal? So yes. I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. That's the thing. Young kids, it's just, and so what, you know, it's right. like not a thing. So yeah, the dinosaurs got to die out. Hopefully <laughs> that'll happen soon. But for the time being, we still have to, we have to deal with some of them. So when you read a dark room in Glitterball City, the way that you end your chapters 
sometimes is like a cliffhanger, almost like, you know, like a Charles Dickens novel would put in his stories because they were serialized. So I'm wondering, did you do that on purpose or did the crime and your experiences just lend themselves to that naturally? Uh, No, I did that on purpose. I wanted to keep people turning pages. And when you write a story, there's ebb and flow, there's peaks, and you just have to you have to look at your structure a little differently. Uh, a chapter, you know, doesn't have to contain one entire scene, one particular time period. You just need to recognize where you've got a peak and you end your chapter at that peak. And then you start a new chapter and then you go down from there. And a lot of times what I'll do is I will end with a cliffhanger and then they start a new chapter and they got to read a couple pages in before they find out, you know, what happened with the cliffhanger. Yeah, that was causing me some anxiety because I would be like, and what happened? You know, and the, the way you wrote it, it's like you're sort of pushed over the edge yeah. to like, OK, now I got to figure this out. That was my intent. And uh, what happened is after like the first or second draft. I went back and I looked for places where I could build in those cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely my intent. Well, it was successful because you were, <laughs> you were definitely just propelled through the story. So when I read, I like that kind of book, you know, mm-hmm. so like I said, I wrote the kind of book that I would want to read. So I'm curious, you know, we like to ask authors when we talk to them about their writing process. So when you were writing this and it took you because of the trial and and you do other things. So it took you a number of years. Was this something that, you know, that you worked on consistently or did you take breaks or tell us a little bit about the ebb and flow of, of the whole process of getting the book to publication? Yeah, this took it took over 10 years for me to write this book. And my process is I take lots of breaks. I've got writer friends who are super disciplined. They can get up every morning at six o'clock and they write till 10 and they put in their four hours. Then they do what they have to do during the rest of the day. When I have a deadline, I can do that. Um, Actually, last year I had big chunks of the book I had to finish. So for like two, three months straight, I was able just to sit down and write every day nonstop. But generally when I don't have a deadline, I kind of just write as the muse, you know, inspires me. Uh, Sometimes I'll go a week or two or a month without writing anything. But writing is so much more than just actually putting pen to paper or, you know, typing out words. For me, it's daydreaming and thinking about plots and letting things that I can't figure out in my story kind of putrefy and and rot in my brain. And then (laughs) when the time comes, it's, you know, ready to come out. So I take lots of breaks. And with this book, I took lots of breaks because it got emotionally draining Mm. uh, at times. I mean, just the subject matter, the terrible crime was a lot to bear. And then I got to a point where I was hearing grumbling from people in the neighborhood, not liking me, you know, writing a book like this. And I generally don't like to, you know, make people mad. So that would affect me. And then This one was drawn out because when I started writing, the ultimate goal was for me to talk to the two accused killers and kind of get their spin on what happened because there's just so many bizarre angles and it's still kind of unclear what happened. And sometimes I'm I'm not quite sure what really happened. I tend to think that the jury's got it right and the prosecution probably was on the right track. But then, you know, like this morning, I, I started listening to the audio version of it and I'm about halfway through and like things are popping up. And I was like, well, I don't know about that now, you know? Mm. And so the book was drawn out because I kept trying to talk to the two guys and they wouldn't talk to me. And so in my mind, I had it that I couldn't write the book until they talked to me. Mm. And uh, in the end, one of them did. I was able to communicate via email. The other still refused. But towards the last couple of years of the process, I just realized I wasn't going to hear from them. And so I kind of built that in as part of the story and, Mm -hmm. you know, use that to develop the story, uh, just kind of went a different angle. But yeah, once I got to that point, when I realized I wasn't going to hear from them, then, you know, then I was able to put an ending to it, uh, visualize, you know, the the bigger picture and that gave me what I needed to, to finish the book. You know, when you're writing about, 
murder. I would think that there could be concerns, you know, as you said, you might make people angry. One of the individuals in this crime comes from a a somewhat well-known Louisville family. And the other one, you know, in your book, the CIA is brought up. So other than, you know, maybe just making people unhappy, were you concerned about, you know, whether this book could impact your career or your finances or your safety? There's part in your book where that safety issue kind of comes up. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. um, At first, not so much, but then as things began to happen, then I started wondering, you know, and probably what you're mentioning in the book is someone, you know, ransacked my house. Yeah. And I heard through the grapevine that it was because of the book. And so I don't want to you know, give any spoilers, but yeah, that made me kind of worry. And I started to, you know, just pay a little more attention, but I'm just thinking that the publicity, the fact that this is out there now, that will kind of be my protection if there's anything I have to worry about. Amy and I went to your your debut of your release. And one of the questions that someone in the audience asked you was, do you have a lawyer? Yeah, I, I have a lawyer and I hope I don't have to use a lawyer right? <laughs> to this book. But, you know, we live in a very litigious uh, society. Everyone sues everyone. But, you know, this is all nonfiction. This is a lot of stuff that's in the public record. It's, you know, a lot of it's just straight from the trials and stuff. And then a lot of it's just what's happening to me. So I'm basically, I'm just writing my story. We all have that right, you know, to tell our own story. Well, your book has received good reviews. You have a starred review from Publishers Weekly and Amazon listed it as one of their top true crime books of the season. And true crime just as a genre, whether it's podcasts, TV shows, books is so big right now. And so referring again to The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, that book increased the tourism in the city of Savannah by 46% two years after it was published. And for a book like yours, you know, you show the city warts and all. So do you think that your book will inspire readers to visit? And were you concerned that residents of Louisville, especially old Louisville, where much of the book takes place, would be upset by your your portrayal? You kind of hinted that there were some people who were upset by it when you were writing it. Yeah, there's always going to be that one group, you know, there's going to be naysayers, whatever, but no, it's going to be the opposite. And it's been happening already. You know, the tours I give in the neighborhood, they, they pretty much spun off of my books. And we have people that come to Louisville just to go to old Louisville and see the places in my books. So we get lots of out of state, we get international tourists that come already. And one of the reasons for that is a couple of years ago, a New York Times reporter came to Louisville and, you know, they have this series, it's called 36 Hours in Whatever City. And so they did 36 Hours in Louisville and they listed uh, my tours as the first thing not to miss when they came to Louisville. So a couple of years later, we're still getting people who read that article coming to old Louisville to see what it's all about. The B&Bs down there, the restaurants, Half the time, the people who are staying there, the people who are eating there are people who are going there because of my books. And uh, they're going there to take the tours and see what you know they've read about. Well, yeah. it's, it's already worked for, for Amy because she texted me over the weekend and said, what was the address of that house from uh, the book? So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was at the St. James Art Fair and I thought, I want to walk past the murder house. Yeah. But, um, you find it? Well, no, because Carrie gave me the wrong address. <laughs> and I took a picture of a house and I sent it to her. I said, I think this is the house. And then when I looked in the book again to see what the address was, it was the wrong street. I'm not originally from Louisville. I've been here for about 15 years and I have yet to do one of your historical tours, although it's been on my list and I I want to make it happen soon. Yeah. Um, you list in your book so many great little tips about the history and the culture of the city uh, and also the architecture. I love architecture tours, so I'm excited to do that. Yeah, come on. Let me know when uh, you want to come and make sure I'm, I'm the tour guide and we'll show you around. <laughs> yeah. You know, you kind of alluded to this, that there were some things in the book that you don't really get an explanation for or, you know, all the ends don't really tie up in the end. So I'm wondering what questions didn't get answered that you wish you could know, besides being able to talk to the, you know, the two perpetrators of the crime. Basically, the two 
questions that I was always trying to get, you know, solid answers to were, you know, what really happened that night of the 911 call? Why were they fighting? And why did Jeffrey really call 911? You know, that hasn't really been explained to my satisfaction. Every time I go back and read my book, you know, like I was saying before, things pop up and I'll notice something that I hadn't really picked up on before. And every time I read the book, I kind of come to a different conclusion. I, I don't read a whole lot of true crime. Is that normal? I mean, if you read true crime, is that kind of normal in the genre that sometimes you don't get the answers that you want or, you know, any answer at all to some of those sort of deep questions? Well, a lot of times with true crime, you know, they've got a trial to look back on and they've got a jury verdict and some see it as kind of cut and dry. Sometimes, you know, they go back and reexamine things and they find information and they present it so that people question whether or not, you know, a person was fairly convicted or acquitted. Mm. But I kind of play around with this, you know, gray area and other aspects in the book as well, because there's a lot of rumors and and scandal and intrigue, how much of it is true, how much of it isn't. So a lot of times people talk, they tell stories, there's legends. So I tried to balance that out in certain areas of the book. And uh, I have a couple characters even come <laughs> out and say, you know, it's okay not to have an answer all the time. Yeah. Sometimes not knowing is okay. You don't always have to have, you know, a black and white situation. Right. I think if you don't, have an answer, it lends itself for the reader to keep toying with it and thinking about it. If you are a a book lover, I think there's a certain amount of pleasure that that comes from that, you know, sort of not being able to let it go. And, you know, you get to sort of ruminate on it a little bit. Exactly. And people sometimes, you know, they like mystery. They like Mm -hmm. unanswered questions. And then it gives them something to think about. The city of Louisville is definitely a, a character in the book. If you had to summarize the city in a sentence, would you be able to do that? And if so, how would you describe Louisville? Oh, I don't know if I could do it in a sentence. I could do it in a couple of <laughs> words, and that would be drinking, smoking, gambling. <laughs> you know, horse racing, bourbon whiskey, tobacco. It's what made the city. It's what made the state so much. So... And those are the things that really left their mark mm-hmm. on the city. And, you know, in old Louisville, half of the mansions down there came from, you know, people out at the racetrack, the, the winners of the Kentucky Derby. Some of them lived on Third Street. A lot of the bourbon barons lived on Millionaire's Row, a lot of the titans of tobacco. So that would probably be it, drinking, smoking, gambling. <laughs> well, very good. Well, I think at this point, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We're back with David Domine and with Carrie, and we're going to talk a little bit about what we're reading. And so, Carrie, what's going on over there? I finished a book. I've read it several times. It's a middle grade book called The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin. I am teaching that to students right now. And it is a mystery. So part of the reason I I like to teach it, I teach it this time of year because there's a a mansion that they don't know, you know, did this person die? They think there's a murder. And so the book is dropping these clues. So there are several people who move into this apartment building and they are told that they are heirs to this fortune and they have to figure out who killed somebody. And so they have a partner and so they have to work with partners. It's a fun mystery for, I teach it to sixth through eighth graders, but even younger, I would say fourth, fifth, sixth, and even, you know, up to ninth grade. And it's, I mean, if you like mysteries, it's a good book, even if you're an adult. One of the things that I thought about, though, in thinking about this book, I am having my students write a mystery. And so we've talked about, you know, so what are some things that uh, that a mystery book has in it? And we talked about red herrings and we talked about clues and suspense and all that stuff. But David, when we were talking to you about your writing process and how you spend a lot of time thinking, working through stuff, not necessarily 
sort of banging on the on the keyboard, it made me think about how hard of a time I'm having writing my own mystery. So I like to model for the students sort of my thinking process. I make videos for my students and I have like zero imagination. I'm much better at writing nonfiction. And so having to come up with ideas and how this mystery is kind of going to play out, I have been like pulling out my hair. And so finally it occurred to me, I was in the shower, like everybody's best ideas happen in the shower. And I came up with, okay, here's where I can go with this. And so when you were talking about, you know, how much time you spend just sort of in the thinking stages, I really related to that because I have spent very little time actually typing anything up at this point Mm -hmm. because it has been so hard for me. My brain just doesn't work that way. I don't really flex that fiction muscle very often. Anyway, I, I think I have gotten it and I think I'll be able to record the video today and have something that I can show my students, but it's been very, very hard. So anyway, I recommend The Westing Game. You know, it's a, it's a quick read, but if you're looking for a mystery for middle grade students, that's a good one to check out. I think that won some awards, didn't it? It did. Yeah. Newbery yeah. Award uh, among, I think, many others. So, well, David, what have you been reading? Well, I just finished a book by Angela Jackson Brown. Yeah. Rain Down set in Depression era Georgia, which is really good. And I actually listened to it and she had a great narrator. Uh, so I just finished that. And I, yesterday I started a new book. It's by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Uh, it's called Ooh. The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Mm, I've read one of her other ones, but not that one. It's like I was mentioning, like how I used to love like old Hollywood stuff, but it, she's inspired by loosely uh, Ava Gardner. The main character kind of sounds like it's Elizabeth Taylor like or maybe some uh, Rita Hayworth. But it's a young writer at a magazine. There's this Hollywood icon and... Uh, she's auctioning off her dresses and she's finally agreeing to an interview and she picks this young writer at this magazine that's bottom of the totem pole and that's the only one she will talk to and so she's been married seven times and the writer goes and they strike up a kind of relationship and all this stuff comes up and i'm only about halfway through but it's um it's it's interesting yeah, um, the one that I had read was uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, and I love that one. But she is such a popular author right now, and I know she has a new one out called Malibu Rising. Yeah, that's a new one. yeah, yeah, and I love the old Hollywood mm-hmm. stuff. So, um, yeah, sounds good. Isn't there? I keep getting this book, the the one that you're talking about, David. There's another book, and it's like seven or seven and a half or. Is there another book, Amy, that you've read? What is that one called? Yeah, that one's a mystery. The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Ugh, I get those two confused all the time. And I think they came out around the same time, uh, several years ago, which probably didn't help that either. Okay. Well, now, because of David's explanation, I feel like I think I can keep them both separate in my mind. All right, Amy, what have you been up to? Well, you know, it's October now, which means, uh, you know, I am a seasonal reader, so it's time for me to start reading all of my spooky books. So the one I want to talk about today, I actually thought was going to be a spooky book, and it wasn't as spooky as what I thought, or at least not in the way that I thought. I, I read a book called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. And I've had this book on my TBR for quite a while. I am a true crime fan, and there really isn't much of a bigger case in the world of true crime than the unsolved Jack the Ripper murders of Victorian England. But this book was not at all what I was expecting. I thought it was going to be a book about the women of the Jack the Ripper cases and how they died. But really what this book is about is the five most prominent Jack the Ripper victims 
and their stories told, but without Jack at all. So when you know there's a mass shooting and the media and the public says, don't mention the killer's name and glorify it or give that killer the attention and notoriety that they crave. Mm -hmm. Well, the author, Hallie Rubenhold, is doing just that, but with this centuries-old case. So she gives the life stories, the original five, the five core cases that most historians are sure were done by Jack. And she tells us about their childhoods, their parents, their educations, their marriages and lovers, but she doesn't mention Jack. We know he's there and we know what he did, but the focus of this book is on the women. So Hallie Rubenhold is a British historian who focuses on women's history. And her approach to this book reminds me of another book that I read recently. And I think I talked about this one on the show. It's a book called You Never Forget Your First by Alexis Coe. And and that book is a biography of George Washington. And it was the first one written by a woman in decades. And Coe's Assertion is that female historians investigate different things, put emphasis on different aspects, and thus a different story gets told. Well, in this, Reuben Hold pushes back against the conventional wisdom that all of Jack's victims were prostitutes, and therefore the people at the time didn't put as much importance on the killings. The old, well, she had it coming argument, you know, to make themselves feel better. So in this book, the author has done extensive research to show that there is only evidence that two of the women may have been prostitutes, but that in Victorian society, poverty stricken women equaled a woman of loose morals. So the victims of Jack the Ripper were in many ways dismissed because they were women who lived in the shadows, but they each had a story. They were daughters, mothers, sisters, employees, students, and churchgoers. But in the end, no one cared because the sensationalized media at the time was that they were all prostitutes. Mm-hmm. So much of Rubenhold's book is really describing to the reader what life would have been like for women in the working and lower classes of Victorian England, how little power a woman had, and one wrong decision or the death of a husband could be the difference between a tolerable life and one of misery, how having child after child propagated poverty, and their poverty brought on alcoholism, marital problems, and illness. The main feeling I came away with this book was one of sympathy for the women, not just because they were murdered, but because in many ways the society they lived in was stacked against them. And the other feeling I had was anger because there are many ways that society is not that much different today. Not to get too political, but people are still trying to control women's bodies. And by taking away women's options, we are dooming more and more women and children to a life of poverty. I'm about 90% uh, done with this book. I am finding it very interesting and it makes me super thankful for the life that I have. But if you go into this book thinking it's about Jack's crimes, you may be disappointed because this isn't a book of true crime. It's a book about the crimes Victorian society made against women. It's all about the women's history and Jack has been cut out of the equation. So super fascinating. If you were a history lover, I think that you will like it because it definitely gives you a sense of that. And it made me think a little bit even about your book, David, because old Louisville, its heyday was in the 1880s and the 1890s with all those big houses. And, you know, there was such a a dichotomy in the income levels, right? You had the super rich, but then you also had the super poor. And in some ways we still have that today. So it was interesting. Well, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, David's going to answer his three about me. We are back with David Domine. Are you ready for your questions, David? Let's go. All right. (laughs) Number one, you have an MA in Spanish literature, an MA in German literature. You study literary translations in Austria, and you teach foreign languages and translation at Bellarmine University. What got you interested in languages, and what do you do to help yourself stay fluent? You know, I don't really know how I got interested in languages. I think it was the fact that I grew up in a little town in backwoods, Wisconsin, and it was like, ugh. (laughs) I wanted to get out of there and learning a foreign language, like at least in my mind, it, you know, helped me see different places. I was always fascinated by geography and foreign countries in grade school. We could like a fourth, fifth grade, we could start with Spanish already. So I started Spanish right away. And the minute I graduated high school, I just wanted to get out of town. And I ended up doing some volunteer work in Asia. I went to the Philippines. That was my first international experience. I was 
think 18. And so I put off going to college for a year or two and traveled a little. And uh, that really gave me the travel bug. And I wanted to learn more languages and see more countries. So that led to me going to Mexico for a year. And then, like I said, most of my 20s, I was in Europe and I was in Austria for five years. I was in Germany for a year. I was in Spain and Italy for half a year. Oh my gosh. And, um, at one time, I just wanted to learn every language out there. <laughs> you know, if there were a chance that I had, you know, a wish that would come true, a wish that was granted, it would be to be able to speak every language in the world for some reason. Mm -hmm. That's always been my biggest wish. Did you learn German as an adult then? Yeah, I was 20 years old when I started college and I started I tried to teach myself things. Uh -huh. First official class, yeah, I think I was like 20 years old. I was an adult. I think it's harder to learn those things, languages. Maybe not for some people. I think some yeah. people have a brain that's wired more for linguistics. Yeah. You might have one of those brains. Yeah, it's it sounds a like. brain, right brain kind of thing. And definitely children, they pick up languages faster. But, you know, adults, uh, one advantage they have, they can't learn it the same way. But, you know, if you're disciplined, you know, that's an advantage. Mm. And, of course, I was living in a country where they were speaking it. You know, I had to. Mm -hmm. I was there for five years. I was immersed in it. That's the best way to learn. So you ask how I, what I do to keep fluent. Well, I travel when I can and mm -hmm. uh, go to countries where they speak the languages I need to speak. And you know, I teach. And so that keeps me speaking it. But yeah, you're not living there speaking it the whole time. You get a little rusty. So usually what happens, I go back and after a month or so, if I'm there that long, it starts coming back and I'm not quite as rusty. But yeah. So what do you teach specifically at Bellarmine? Are you teaching Spanish literature, German literature? Um, it, it depends on the semester. This year, I'm doing some German translation classes and uh, beginning and mid-level German classes, one of okay. the translation class. So it's all German. I might do like a, uh, I teach creative writing sometimes, like a food writing class. I do that every now and then. A world geography as taught through food. It's called World on a Plate. Oh, cool. That's what I would like to take yeah. right there. So this kind of rolls into your question number two, which is uh, on your Instagram at Bluegrass Peasant, you post so many scrumptious looking pictures of food. Some you've made yourself and some you've enjoyed at restaurants. Where did you learn to cook and what do you enjoy about it? Um, I've just always been fascinated by food, probably because I like to eat. That's my problem. <laughs> I, just, I just want to eat all the time, you know? So growing up, my father wasn't around after I was like after age five or so. So all I saw was women in my life, my mother and aunts and my grandmother when she came to visit. And I just loved being in the kitchen and watching them cook. And my paternal grandmother, you know, we'd spend weekends at her house and she'd hoist me up on her hip when I was two, three years old and show me how to scramble eggs. And she'd let me, you know, play in the kitchen and she taught me things and I just, I don't know it was what it was, but I just always had this love for the kitchen. I, I had this just strange upbringing. My mother became very distant after a while and my three brothers and I kind of had to raise ourselves from like, you know, the age of 11, 12, my age on. And I realized that, you know, the kitchen, home cooked food represents, you know, a happy household. And mm -hmm. When I got older, I, what I realized is I'm, I think I'm trying to recreate things that I didn't have in my childhood. Mm. I grew up, we were really, really poor. And so food, you know, that's, that can be a status symbol and mm. a source of comfort. And I think I realized that having food is security. Mm. And I just love cooking. I love cooking for people. Uh, it's artistic for me. That's, you know, that's my therapy. I love baking. What I love most about it is not just the final product, you know, something that tastes delicious, that looks beautiful. But I love the fact that it's a way to bring people together and kind of recreate family. Yeah, I think there's something very nurturing. I, I love to cook as well and mm -hmm. bake. And I think there's something very, at least I find it to be so. In some ways, that's sort of my way of showing somebody that I care about them is to cook for them or cook something for them, mm -hmm. you know, so. If you're my family, when I cook, they're like, are you trying to kill us? Because that's what you're really <laughs> like, really? Is this what you're trying to do? Are you trying but to say it's not your love language, Carrie? It is not my love language. But, you know, because you've traveled, do you think that there's 
I, I guess, a connection between your interest in travel and different languages with your cooking and sort of a willingness to try new things? Do you think oh, there's yeah. a relationship between those? Oh, definitely. And when you travel, you know, it's it's all about the food. You know, you're seeing yeah. beautiful things, but food is such an important thing and cultures are expressed through food. And so um, living abroad and learning, you know, about new foods and cooking in different places, you know, that really fascinated me as well. So yeah, there's definitely a connection there. All right. Your last question. So you travel to Mexico frequently and you have post amazing photos of the scenery and the food. So do you usually go to the same location? Like when you go to Mexico or do you travel to different locales and do you have some favorite places that you would recommend other people visit? So there are some places I go to over and over again because I love them. I love Mexico City, Guadalajara, the second largest city, Puerto Vallarta on the beach. So I usually am one of each of those three cities once a year at least. But then every time I go, I try to go someplace I haven't been before. You know, I've been slowly checking off all the major cities in Mexico and now I'm doing small towns and stuff. So I go back to a lot of the places that I really love. And my plan is eventually just to move to Mexico in a couple of years if it works out. I have a question for you then, because I am intrigued by the city of, and I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly, but Merida, M-E-R-I-D-A, because I've heard that it's a very artsy city. Have you been there? And Yeah, and- that's actually another one that I go, I, I was there in December and I just, uh, oh, in August I was there. We were there for two weeks. It's on the Yucatan Peninsula. It's the capital of Yucatan. It's an old colonial city. It's one of the safest cities in Mexico. It's hot. So just be prepared. Uh, Even in December, it's hot? Yeah. I mean, not okay. as hot, August hot, but it's, you know, it's Caribbean. It's a pretty city. It does have a kind of artistic vibe. So definitely, yeah, that's a, a good place. I just tell Americans if they're going to travel, you know, understand there's more than Cancun and, mm. you know, there's more than the beaches and it's not all Tijuana going across the border, you know, from San Diego. Right. <laughs> Mexico has so many beautiful cities, colonial cities all around Mexico City, the old colonial, you know, silver mining towns. And in the southern part, there's just dozens and dozens of beautiful cities and towns in Mexico where they're like time capsules. They haven't really changed in, you know, 300 years. The old cathedral from the 15 or 1600s is there. All the cobblestone streets, beautiful colonial buildings. They're just so many beautiful cities and towns in Mexico. Americans, you know, it's so close. It's so easy to get to, but you get there in such a different world. Now, when you go to those smaller towns, do you make them like day trips from your larger city that you're visiting, say Mexico City or Puerto Vallarta? Or are you going and spending days in those smaller towns? Yes, both. (laughs) Both, okay. (laughs) Sometimes I'll go to a little place and just stay there for a week. A lot of times I'll make my base in one of the cities I go to all the time and then do little day trips. I love traveling by bus. So a lot of times, like I'll go fly into Mexico city and then take the bus up to uh, Puerto Vallarta and fly back from there. But then I'll make stops on the way. And a lot of times, you know, I'll just stop, get off the bus and, you know, it's a new little town. I'll take two or three hours and go downtown and have lunch or something, check out the town, then hop back on the bus and, you know, go on my way. So I you might be the only person I've ever heard say that they like traveling by bus. So let's explore that. Just I just have to explore that a minute. <laughs> Amy is totally pumping you for information for her next trip. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what do, why do you like traveling by bus? I don't know. Maybe it's just because it gives you that time. Mm. And especially like overnight trips by bus, I just, I mean, sometimes it's not very comfortable, but like <laughs> the first class buses in Mexico, they're like airplanes, you know. Oh, Okay. Rough seats, reclining seats and computer ports, and you can watch movies and stuff. Each one has its little individual TV. Um, sometimes, sometimes they have like a little stewardess that goes through and sells snacks, depending on what bus line you have. But I just love that. And I like to travel with people, but I, I love traveling alone as well. It gives me time to think. And usually when I'm traveling like overnight on a bus, that's when I get kind of maudlin and all the pains of the world on my shoulder and I, I just think about things. And those are the kind of trips that really rejuvenate me and give me ideas for writing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
maybe David, you should start doing tours, taking people from Louisville to Mexico and, and taking them around. Actually, people have been asking and we were planning one last year, but then COVID kind of ruined Really? It. Well, that's yeah. good to know. Yeah. So know. I've, uh, I've had people asking and maybe next year we'll be able to do one. <laughs> All right. Well, David, it has been so nice chatting with you. Good luck with everything. I know you'll be promoting your book, A Dark Room in Glitterball City. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You can find David Dominey on Instagram at Bluegrass Peasant and at his website, www.daviddominey.com. You can find information about David's historical tours of Old Louisville at www.louisvillehistorictours.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at The Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org. <laughs>